Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Uh, we've got Jim and Jeffrey this time, uh, so hi to both of you. Hi, Squirrel. Hi, Squirrel. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and it's nice to be back with you again, Jim. Uh, as I mentioned last week, we've uh, been doing, you and I have done a podcast before on the topic that we're continuing with, so we, we started uh, last week uh, looking at your new book, Jim, on uh, lean startup in large organizations. And uh, we're really keen to, to look at this idea of, uh, what do you call it, Gra graduated uh, improvement? Is that right? Graduated engagement. Graduated engagement. Okay, well, um, uh, so we uh, set the scene for, for folks who might not have listened to last week's. You definitely should. If you didn't, uh, Jim's got some really great ideas on applying uh, lean startup ideas and in general making changes in large organizations. But to, to set the scene from then, you, you, you have, you've taken essentially Eric Reese's lean startup ideas, which are designed for, guess what, startups, and you've figured out how to change those and adjust them and bring them into companies that have these these antibodies against um, new innovation and ideas because it actually helps them. Those antibodies are there to protect them against chaos. Uh, so, um, what's what's the idea of graduated engagement? Is this is this kind of like being vaccinated? Um, are you getting gradually uh, attenuated to, uh, to to something, or, or what is it? How does it work? That'd be a nice analogy. Graduated engagement uh, deals with the natural resistance that you get from functions inside the organization, something Govindarajan and Trimble call the performance engine. And uh, my, my point, I think we left the last podcast with is people in the functions are behaving in the same way that you would behave if you were in their role which means that you can understand it. You can understand it by listening to them, trying to understand the pressures that they're under and trying to find some way of, uh, of helping them uh, deal with those pressures. So just to take an example, if you're in IT and the innovation team is starting to build something, prototype something, test it with customers, and they're using some non-standard operating environment, your legitimate fear is that they're gonna build this thing they're going to put it out there, and then they're going to hand it over to you, and you're going to have to maintain it. And oh my God, they're not going to use our standard security framework. Our users' data will be at risk. Um, you know, oh, what chaos all is this of those going things. to introduce? Yeah. So you could see that's actually a very legitimate concern, and uh, and if you just poo-poo it or ignore it, um, then you're not doing them any good. On the other hand, if if IT can veto what the innovation teams, you won't make progress. So at the time we were doing. Uh, one of the applications at Goodyear, it was a cloud-based application. And it had to be a cloud-based application, and we had no standard operating environment for cloud-based operations. So, you know, we were at a little bit of a loggerhead for six months. How do we go forward with this program and uh, not disrupt IT? Or you take the instance of a, a liability lawyer. Well, suppose you're changing the business model, and now you're introducing new and different liabilities. So for example, the business we worked on at uh, Goodyear that monitored tires on trucks in real time, it monitored Goodyear tires and it monitored competitor tires and it gave alerts. Well, what's the liability that Goodyear has if a competitor tire using our monitoring system doesn't perform? There were new liabilities and the general response to that is say, don't do it. You know, we, we want to protect our name above all. So you, you understand their position and yet it's slowing you down. Or even with contracts, the same kind of thing happens. New terms, new conditions, new risks, 
it goes to the bottom of the stack. So that from their perspective, those people are doing their jobs. And I, you have to understand that. Graduated engagement sort of is designed to let people do their jobs and still let innovation move forward. So it says in the early stages, maybe when you're just in that first phase of the innovation uh, stage gate process, pretty much the innovation team can do what they want to do. They don't really need permission because they're learning and it's small scale and it probably won't go anywhere because that, that's the reality of the world. Similarly, but you want to make them aware. So you're engaging them just to say, this is what's going on. So you can start thinking about things that might be of concern. So that IT team isn't going to panic about the cloud coming in because the, the, no. uh, the cloud isn't going, it's not going to roll out to them. That's the reassurance you give them in the early stage. Did I hear that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. You give the reassurance that we will address all your issues during incubation. So incubation typically takes eight months, 10 months, a year. During that time, you can do an awful lot to make sure that the application gets reviewed, make sure that it's operating on a sustainable uh, uh, you know, operating environment, make sure that the people who are going to have to maintain it either don't have to maintain it or uh, have something that's capable of meeting, being maintained. The liability issues, there's time to thrash them out, understand what other people in similar businesses are doing, manage them and set up something separately. Even the accounting system may need to change and there's time to work that out. Use spreadsheets in the meantime. The whole idea of graduated engagement is you don't keep people in the dark on, on the hopes that they're not going to jump down your throat and stop things. You keep them aware and then you commit that when we get into incubation, when we're actually in market and we're taking a chunk of time, while we're learning with market, we will also address these issues. So we'll meet with you periodically, we'll collect the issues, and we will commit to addressing them in good faith. So that's the idea behind it. What's, what's really interesting to me here is, is that this uh, kind of the tension here between those people in that sort of early incubation stage and the established uh, uh, organization that's something that actually we've talked about before, and it goes back quite a ways. Uh, I'm reminded of the you know commandos, infantry, and police model, which showed up in Accidental Empires, and uh, 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 where where they talk about the the tension that would exist in early stage companies. That the the book was talking about the software companies in in the yeah. late 70s and, and and 80s, and that you'd have these the, the the people who come in who start companies have a very different mindset from the town planners were established. And kind of here what we're describing, and in, 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 that, in that sense, they were talking about what happens as a company grows from being small to being large, which is that yes. the, the town planners come in and kind of push out the commandos, or I, I guess the, the new terminology for this now is pioneers, settlers, and town planners. You know, the, Slightly the town less planners, violent. yeah, push, push <laughs> out the, 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 the pioneers. And, and what you're describing now is kind of something the other way around, which is to say, how can a company of town planners an established ongoing concern create space and the opportunity for, for pioneers to go out and pioneer new areas and explicitly establish, you know, actually there's a, a, a different way to operate that we should allow and carve out a different way to operate for these pioneers. And they're going to work differently from us. And, and that's a good thing. It's going to, they're going to solve new problems for us. Yes, it's, that's exactly right. And I don't think anything else works for new business innovation. They're in a separate place. But the key that I think is uh, important to making it succeed, other than you know trying to not 
solve all the problems before you even know when you're going to go to market is to negotiate uh, sp where it's important, negotiate the relationships between the two entities. So if the new company needs to leverage the sales force or the service network, uh, then negotiate up front. What are we going to do? How are we going to go to the customer? What's the sales force going to do traditionally? Who gets credit for the sale of a tire if you're selling services? That you, you just that you go through, and that's again, uh, Govinda Rajan and Trimble sort of uh, studied a whole lot of, uh, and I, I interviewed him, so there's an excerpt from his interview in the book as well. Uh, what works is when you have some independence and a connection to the core. If you have no connection to the core, you might as well be a startup and you'll probably not be a very good one because you're not bringing the, uh, the incentives, the hiring flexibility, the ability to build a culture, uh, the funding in many cases that a startup might have. How you win is by leveraging the assets of your own core business. And in order to do that, you have to work together. So this is, this is important, uh, not just to let the new business survive, but to help it succeed by, uh, by building off of the assets of the, of the core business. And that really becomes the opportunity, as you say here. If, you know, if, it, if you're not gonna leverage what's in, in the core, then you probably shouldn't be within the company at all. Right, exactly, right. And, and, and then there's the question, do you want to be essentially a company that's a VC firm that's building businesses that either can scale or, or spin out? I don't know why you would do that. <laughs> it can be more efficiently done by, uh, by the ecosystem, the VC ecosystem. But if you can leverage your assets, and I think, I, I think Squirrel, we talked about this before, Amazon's a master of that. They started out and they had an asset which was their customer base and their storefront. And instead of hoarding it, they created a new business. We'll sell uh, our storefronts. We'll take a piece of the action. We'll sell our infrastructure for delivery. We'll take a piece of the action. We'll even set, share our customer base. And then, you know, they've done it. Eventually, the infrastructure got to the point where it was cloud-based. And they said, okay, we'll share our cloud services. We will make a business out of cloud services. There's resistance internally to these type of things but they're taking an asset, gives them a right to win, and they're starting a new business and a, a very different business, say cloud services from, uh, from retail, e-tail, is a very different business, but they're leveraging across, uh, across the company. I think it works. So uh, I was talking to someone last week who um, runs a what he called a, a small startup within a large name brand organization. So I think he's in just the situation you're describing. The advantage that um, Amazon has, well, one advantage that's obvious they have, is, is Jeff Bezos, who is um, busy building spaceships and things, right? So he, he's kind of a, a commando or pioneer, whichever you want to call it. Um, Goodyear's not known for that, um, nor is this particular uh, uh, person's company. And so there, there's more to overcome when you don't have necessarily a, a, a commando approach from the top. So uh, what do you do when someone says, well, look, I'm glad you're going to be keeping me apprised of all this. And then when you keep me apprised of it, I can kill it when you have yeah. uh, vigorous <laughs> opposition with it inside. Right. So you do. And we did at Goodyear. You do have to have uh, strong executive support. Mm. Um, and, but 
you can't rely on that alone. So if what you do is say, I am, you know, I have executive support, you have to help me. It doesn't work very well. No. People can, uh, can comply, but help requires more than compliance. Exactly. So what do you do about that? There, there are, uh, graduated engagement is one thing. And I think that that does work because I think people do want to help you where they can. There are very few people who want to kill you. Uh, in, in that world. The bigger challenge in large companies is not at the worker level where procurement or IT or sales isn't giving you support, although there, that can be a challenge. The biggest thing is at the executive level where people have an issue with cannibalization of the core. I'm concerned your business is going to get good by making the core business bad, or they have concerns about draining resources. So I actually heard someone once say in, in one company, you want me to invest in this? I don't even have the resources to pave the parking lots of the service centers. You know, so there's this operational resource fight, and it's a resource fight for both dollars and for talent. So there's a, those resistances. And I think at that level, um, one thing you do is the separate but connected. That keeps the people who are most resistant from being able to squash something. For the cannibalization, I kept a dual P&L. You have one about the core, the business you're building, and one about how it's helping or hurting the core. Is it making some business go away and dragging in other? So you keep a dual uh, P&L for that. And then the, the biggest answer is, over time, you develop what uh, Tushman called ambidextrous leaders, people who can go from an exploit meeting to an explore meeting and not confuse the two and ask the wrong questions. You know, you, you don't want to go into a startup environment and ask people, well, you know, what are your revenues? When are you going to have sales of X million dollars? What's your cost structure? What are you doing to cut the cost out of it? You're trying to learn about how to make the business work. And the executives need to learn to ask the right questions to make that happen. So these are all yes and principles. You do lean startup and you complement it with other practices that do to use an engineering term, do the impedance match between the new venture and the uh, existing venture. Very nice. So yes, and is one of our favorite uh, ideas. <laughs> Thanks. Our, our longtime listeners and, and readers of our book will be pleased when you talk about the uh, ambiguous leadership that this is really built on, and in part on Chris Argyris's work about double loop learning and uh, the need to reduce uh, defensive routines. So uh, um, people who have read our book will find some connection in this uh, in the skills uh, with what it takes to, to have these kind of conversations and to, to be able to uh, um, do the joint design and, and to, to be able to have that you know discussion about, well, what context are we in right now and make sure we're applying the right principles. Yeah, that's exactly right where it comes from. And, and uh, Squirrel and I have talked about double loop learning and single loop learning and the difficulty inside large companies. I think you're, uh, you're exactly right. And being able to create those conversations is the hardest thing. So I know you guys have focused on creating the conversations that let this kind of uh, work happen. And uh, so, you know, people will benefit from both, I think. Fantastic. Uh, because I, I think that that, uh, I, I do think double loop learning is what's, that's what's happening at an executive level where there are issues of identity. And they, people say, we want to interview, uh, to innovate. They don't, address the fact that they have a fixed view of identity for the corporation and therefore they undermine the business 
and or they want to innovate, but they have a uh, you know they don't have a shared view about uh, what they're willing to risk in the core business. And there's the the cannibalization issue looms large. And without people saying, "I don't want to do this business," they let it die by uh, by you know preventing it from cannibalizing and sometimes preventing it from uh, succeeding. So I hope that's clear. It is. Well, we, we definitely want to innovate, but we definitely also don't want to change anything. <laughs> that, would, that would be the dangerous exactly. point of view and, and the one that you can overcome with all these uh, very interesting techniques you've just talked about. Jim, we could talk to you for hours. I, I think we should close here. But um, l- listeners, uh, you, can, you can get a copy of uh, Jim's book very soon. I think, uh, Jim, it's uh, available for pre-order either now or soon. Right now. Yeah, it's available oh, for pre-order fantastic. now. Where can listeners find that? You can find it at Amazon or Barnes and Noble, um, and there's a link to both of those through my website. It's called Lean Startup in Large Organizations, subtitled Overcoming Resistance to Innovation. Fantastic. And if they want to find you, where's the best place to look? Uh, they can go to the website, uh, leanstartup.biz, uh, and, and uh, find links to me. Fantastic. And thank you both for your time. Of course. Those links will be in our show notes, as they always are. And you can always get in touch with us as well at agileconversations.com and ask us about these topics. How are you bringing lean startup ideas into your small or medium-sized or large organization? That's topics we always want to talk to people about. And uh, on their uh, agileconversations.com, you'll find email and Twitter for Jeffrey and me. You'll find the events we're doing. You'll find free videos, all kinds of stuff. So have a look there. And of course, you can also just come back next Wednesday when we'll have another episode of Troubleshooting Agile. Thanks, Jim and Jeffrey. Thanks, Grant. Thank you very much.